You are listening to a podcast from The National. The Middle East is not known for its good news, and 2018 was no exception. But even in the region's often dour political environment, there were stories that gave us optimism for the future. I'm Nasr al-Wesmi. On this episode of Beyond the Headlines, the National's journalists look back at stories they covered that gave them hope. Some reason for cheer in an otherwise solemn year. Iraq erupted in protest earlier this year over the lack of clean water and the government's failure to provide basic needs. This was after years of a war against ISIS that derailed millions of lives and left a once vibrant economy in tatters. But there are those in Iraq aspiring to restore what has been lost. Sofia Barbarani, an editor on the Foreign Desk, saw this herself. She tells us about two Iraqis' efforts to reinvigorate Iraq's once booming dates industry. In June, I was in Iraq um, and I spoke to a date farmer and a shopkeeper who sells dates. And this story in particular, um, where I looked at the overall date industry in Iraq, was, I'd say, the one story in 2018 that brought um, some sense of hope. Why did it bring you hope? What are these two farmers trying to achieve? Well, both of them are working to revive the um, status of the Iraqi date, which back in the day used to be the most prestigious kind of date in the region. Um, But obviously, you know, as a result of uh, war and financial woes, it's kind of lost its status. So it was interesting to see how these two men, both incredibly passionate uh, about uh, dates and 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 passionate about the dates industry, are trying in their own separate ways to revive and to to bring it back to what it used to be. This wasn't your first trip to Iraq. You spent many years reporting uh, from the country. Can you tell us a little bit about Fallujah, the violence it experienced, and how it affected these two men? What happened was when ISIS arrived in in late 2013, um, both men were displaced. So, for example, the one of the men, he's a lawyer and he owns um, a patch of land on the outskirts of Fallujah. He was displaced for three years during this time. ISIS took over his land. And then when the Iraqi military uh, went to take Fallujah back, there were clashes between ISIS and the Iraqi military, which meant that both his house and his land, including the palm trees, um, some 1,000 palm trees, 400 of them were burnt uh, to the ground. And these were palm trees that were... um, were planted over generations. So he told me about his grandfather planting, his father planting, and, and himself as well. It was sad in a way to, to see, and, and we walked through his farm, and it was beautiful, but it was quite wild in, in its disrepair. It, what struck me as very hopeful was that this lawyer um, kept looking around and saying, yes, you know, like, this is what happened. This is what's happened to my farm. This is also what's happened to the country as a whole. But I'm here to to replant these these trees and, and to revive my farm. And this is not only for him, but for the future generations of Iraqis, as you said. Uh, His grandfather, his father planted it for him. This strikes me as the perfect metaphor. Is this kind of representative of the country at large? Absolutely. And um, I think, you know, often it can often sound like a cliche when people do talk about war-torn countries and and the people who are resilient and pick themselves up. But I think, at least in my experience, when it comes to Iraq, 
it is definitely the case. Um, and, and this is what Iraqis have been doing for decades now is picking themselves back up. And I think um, this story and, and looking at the date um, and the date industry and, and the Iraqis behind this industry was a perfect example of what Iraq as a whole is doing now post-ISIS, which is once again picking itself back up and, and reviving the country. And he eventually plans on kind of becoming competition for Saudi Arabia and the other countries in the region that grow a lot of, uh, of dates, yeah? Yeah, so I think what Iraqis would like to do generally is um, overtake Saudi and Iran, which are the, at the moment are the best-selling dates in the region. Um, in Fallujah and the Bazaar, the shopkeeper uh, was pretty adamant that Iranian dates, for example, the quality isn't good, but it's all they're getting right now. Um, so he's definitely a fan of, of pushing for the Iraqi date. And, and he used to actually travel every year to Mecca for Hajj. And he used to stuff his car full of boxes and boxes of dates because he knew that people in Saudi Arabia and, you know, people who were coming for Hajj would uh, would really uh, appreciate these these gifts. Not only is the date industry uh, being revived, but also the border is going to be open between Iraq and uh, Saudi Arabia. So yeah. maybe he will be able to achieve that after all. Let's hope so. All right. Thank you, Sophia. Thank you. Sophia wasn't alone in extracting hope from a story of Iraqi perseverance. Saeed Saeed covers music and culture at The National. He recalls a concert in Abu Dhabi with two Arab artists. The Iraqi and Tunisian musicians are both trying to rescue parts of their heritage from the threat of being lost. Saeed, what brought you hope this year? Um, it was an unexpected um, event. And it was at the first week of the year, essentially. So in Abu Dhabi, there was a series of concerts called um, the Umsiyat Concert Series. They were held at the Umm Al-Imarat Park here in Abu Dhabi. And it was a really kind of low-key gig. It was a gig that that, um, that paired up two singers. Um, one was Iraq's uh, Farida Muhammad Ali and Tunisia's Lutfi Bushnak. What was really interesting about you know that concert and speaking to these people prior to that concert, because both of them came to the UAE to perform uh, a musical genre um, that you know that harkens back you know to, um, to, um, to the history mm-hmm. of their of their respective countries. So you had um, you had Farida Muhammad Ali. She's performing um, the Iraqi maqam, and you have Lutfi Bushnak performing um, the the Ma'luf, which is linked to his um, to, to to the region um, of Tunisia. So these two people, veterans, um, you know, of the industry, performing this old and ancient type of musical tradition to a new audience, a new multi-generational audience in Abu Dhabi. And it was just great to see, you know, um, just a younger younger generation just kind of understanding and for many of them witnessing for the first time this, you know, um, this art that's from their countries, from their region, from the Arab world. It was a reminder that the Arab world, you know, despite what we see in the news, such a vibrant, culturally rich nation. It was a very, very powerful thing to witness. Do you think the efforts by these two artists to preserve uh, a part of their culture, their heritage, do you think that enriches the identity of uh, people from those two countries, Iraq and Tunisia, especially considering that Iraq has gone through you know, political strife, 
And there's a huge diaspora abroad. You know, we have a new generation growing up in between cultures. I think these artists can give a sense of uh, belonging to people around the world. Yeah, I th- I think you're right in the sense that I don't think it enriches anymore because the actual culture that because the actual culture is rich enough already. It's a reminder, mm-hmm. um, you know, to, you know, to people, particularly Farida Muhammad Ali with the Iraqi maqam. In the Iraqi maqam, you know, you know, it it, it links back as far as back as the Abbas uh, as the Abbasid period, mm-hmm. which is the 18th to 13th century. You know, Islamic in in which is kind of viewed as part of the Islamic Golden Age. So. She was kind of, yeah, you know, and so she was kind of singing these, you know, like, you know, these compositions, you know, that kind of linked rich Arabic um, poetry, you know. So she was kind of telling us, this, this is us, um, you know, and not just for the Iraqis, you know, for the, for the whole Arab world. You know, this is, this is where we come from. So for many people, I mean, depending where you are, now in, in that concert, the, if you were kind of, if you were an Iraqi, you know, um, over fifty or over, over sixty years old, which there were a lot of in that concert, um, it was a bittersweet experience. It was a reminder of you know of, of a better time. Mm-hmm. While for those, um, and there were a sizable amount of um, people who were kind of, you know, in their you know uh, in the late teens to in early thirties. For them, it was it was just an amazing thing to see. You know, I mean, they were, I mean, I mean, they were inter, they were interacting and listening to this thing. You know, for for many of them for the first time. So for them, it was um, uh, a welcome introduction to a part, you know, to a part of their history. Do you think this also represents uh, Abu Dhabi's attempt to breathe life into culture or heritage that is uh, maybe threatened of being uh, lost uh, forever? Mm. Absolutely. I mean, and because this was part of a concert series called the Umsiyat concert series. So, um, so as part of the series as well, um, you know, you had performers from from you know Southeast Asia performing as well. So, I mean, yeah, and 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 they're performing their own in respective um, you know uh, music from their cultures. Yes, Abu Dhabi has always kind of um, viewed itself as you know as a cultural capital. So for Abu Dhabi. Is not really interested in you know getting you know what's most popular. I mean, mm. the, the shows need to have a meaning. The shows need to have a context. So this concert is definitely part of Abu Dhabi's kind of vision, you know, of you know spreading culture, you know, um, and and education, and doing it, you know, in a top class environment that is safe and accessible. You travel around the world. You go to a lot of concerts every year. Why did this one specifically give you hope when you look back? It's a tough question. I mean, it's one of those things. That, that was a concert, again, because, you know, when I went to that concert, I didn't expect anything. I thought this will be another fun and low-key concert. But, you know, but I was just touched, you know, by seeing, you know, you know, you know by seeing artists that were so dedicated, you know, to what they do. And you know, and they weren't and, and you know they weren't thinking about what's popular or not. I mean, they were dedicated in conveying a message, conveying a message of hope, and a reminder of, of and a reminder of who we are for those from the Arab world. So for me, just seeing that, it, it just re, it deeply resonated with me, and it was just great to see people from different cultures and different generations kind of being part of that. You know, it felt like definitely there's, there's a conveying of a message, you know, that we are that, that, that we are actually, that we are better than what people think we are. 
Saeed talked about how some artists are trying to reintroduce culture to youth. But is today's generation too distracted? A poll from this year says yes. Emiratis spend six and a half hours a day on their smartphones, according to YouGov. Hanin al-Dajani, a senior reporter at The National, brings us a story about a group in Dubai who is trying to change that. Mafi Wi-Fi, or Arabic for no Wi-Fi, is all about encouraging digital detox. Uh, basically, it's a group of people uh, who enroll together in uh, OCRs, which is obstacle course races and races in general and runs and activities, anything really, just to go outside and play like before there was Wi-Fi. So, Mafi Wi-Fi. So this story made me hopeful because uh, when I met this group of people, I went there to interview them. And then, you know, immediately they gave me a T-shirt with a no Wi-Fi sign and they said, Wallah, you are one of us. Uh, which means we swear you are one of us. And they said, you are welcome to join us for any races, for any activities. You can bring any of your friends. The WhatsApp group is open. And just let's just go and play outside and be fit. Um, and honestly, before I met this group, I would have never thought of joining a race or a run. Uh, now I've joined the Spartan Beast. I've done the Adnok 10K run. And I realized that it's something that I really like. So it did give me hope that I can try, I can continue to try new things and enjoy them and actually be good at them. What about their their bigger message? Mafi Wi-Fi, no Wi-Fi. What's, yes. What's, what's that about? Uh, well, I, well, as you know now, it's really frustrating how, you know, children, before they can even talk, they will just be using the their phones and iPads and mainly Wi-Fi. So their idea is that uh, let's be connected and do things together because our connection is stronger than Wi-Fi. That's their motto. Uh, so basically, even if it's not being fit and active, even if it's just going out for a meal or going out to Global Village or uh, any activity just that keeps people together and outside together so they can have that human connection instead of that Wi-Fi connection. But ironically, um, they also encourage people that whenever they're doing something active to hashtag Wallah, I was there and at Mafi Wi-Fi so they can repost it for them. So they're actually using Wi-Fi a lot, but, you know, to serve the bigger goal. <laughs> right, right. And this is this is a big problem in the region. We have some of the biggest, highest percentages of mobile penetration in the UAE and we know in Saudi Arabia. Uh, how has this had an effect on your phone usage or your your like uh, your dependence on Internet? You mean, did it make me less dependent or do you mean it's Well, yeah. Has it changed your, your habits? Has it made you less dependent? Are you out uh, more? Not really. But I mean, generally for me, when I'm doing something fun in general, uh, you know, since years ago, if I'm traveling or if I'm doing anything really that I'm preoccupied, I hate looking at my phone. Like mm. it just distracts me for no reason. So if I'm really enjoying my time, I would keep my phone away for hours and not care. You know, if I, if I wasn't working, if I was off, if, you know, I knew no one would be calling me. So for me, using my phone isn't something big in my life unless I have to, which is pretty much 24-7 almost. But when I don't have to, I really don't want to use my phone. So what is the local aspect of this group? Uh, one of their goals was that uh, as Dubai is trying to be the fittest city in the world by 2030, I think, um, that, you know, they're doing this, encouraging people to be fit, maybe people who were never encouraged to do uh, athletic things or like join races like myself. So this is so so in their opinion this would help serve the goal of the government uh, of Dubai government to make Dubai the fittest city. I mean they're based in Dubai but it's still pan UAE so there's a direct link between uh internet usage and being overweight actually uh being sedentary 
And this country suffers from diabetes. It suffers from a range of health issues as a result of being overweight. I mean, this group seems to be the, trying to solve that challenge in a fun way. Yes, yes, exactly. Especially in the, especially from the angle that they say we welcome everyone. You know, even if you're a beginner who never joined a, a race before, or if you're really an, an athlete, an established athlete. You know, we welcome everybody. So yeah, so when you open the door to everyone, you know, you have the beginners. They're encouraged by you know the supporters and then you have those established athletes who actually want to you know uh, show themselves but be in a nice maybe collaborative environment they will get that as well and then there's the there's the physical aspect but what about the mental aspect being outside doing things in a group setting that must have some effect on how you feel Yes, of course, because when you do things as part of a group, you you have more positive energy, you're more encouraged, you're not afraid to try new things. Maybe if you want to try activi- an activity that, that you never tried before and then you go and you know you know you don't know anybody, you might feel kind of alienated or feel a little bit, you know, what are they going to think of me? Am I doing this right? Am I doing this wrong? But when you're just part of a group who says just come and have fun and we'll support you, so yeah. And most importantly, don't use your phone. Yes, yes. And I'm very happy to have that break from the phone. <laughs> okay, thank you, Hanin. You're welcome. Thank you. The tenacity of the human spirit is best exemplified by the Palestinian people. They dream of returning to their ancestral home despite decades of repression and illegal Israeli occupation. Through it all, there is hope. Willie Lowry, a multimedia journalist, reported earlier this year from Hebron and tells us firsthand how the Palestinian spirit remains intact. So in May of this year, I was in Palestine working on stories uh, in relation to the 70th anniversary of Nekba. And I was in the city of Hebron, which is historically one of the most, I guess, divisive cities uh, in the area, really a microcosm for the whole issue Palestinians make up the vast majority, over 200,000 of them, and yet 800 settlers, Israeli settlers, live right in the middle of the city and basically cut the city in half, making it almost impossible for Palestinians to navigate. And I met a guy called Badi Dwake. He was just walking down the street, saw me with my camera. We started talking, and then he gave me a tour of the city. And you know, gave me access to the city in a way that I wouldn't have had by myself. And just seeing and meeting him and talking to him, seeing all of the injustices and indignities that he faces on a daily basis and how he perseveres and doesn't let them sort of affect or bitter him, it was an amazing scene. This isn't your first trip to Palestine. No, I've been I've been a few times. I spent uh, about four months there in uh, 2009. And Every time I go, I leave feeling both more discouraged about the situation and at the same time more inspired. Discouraged part, uh, I think we understand, but why more inspired? By the people that I meet there and the strength of their characters. Whenever I'm, I'm working, I'm always, you know, what I love about journalism is the opportunity to meet people. And I think particularly when you cover this region, you see a lot of the shock and the awe of, uh, of news events and, and of conflicts, but you, you lose the human element. And to me, Palestinians particularly, they really demonstrate the strength of character, the strength of the human spirit, the unwillingness to bend or to break to what is, you know, an unjust occupation. What are some of the things that you saw while you were on this trip uh, that represented this... Palestinian spirit, the the 
willingness to keep trying. So while I was there, I stayed in Bethlehem, which is the same city I spent about a month in in 2009. And the city itself had evolved quite a bit. And there were restaurants and cafes that were thriving in a way that quite frankly, 10 years ago or almost 10 years ago, they weren't. And there were, I met an artist who uses trash to create beautiful objects and who's, you know, used the occupation not as something to be bitter about, but as something to fuel his art and to inspire him. I think throughout Palestine and throughout Palestinian culture, that's what people do. Thanks to Sofia Barbarani, Hanin Dajani, Willie Lowry, and Saeed Saeed for their time. I'd also like to thank Kevin Jeffers for producing the show. Subscribe to Beyond the Headlines on Apple Podcasts or your favorite app. Make sure to follow our coverage on the national.ae. Thank you for listening and see you in 2019.